for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Philippians. We are wrapping up our introduction to Philippians with uh, what I'm calling uh, Philippians introductory material. I know, great title. And uh, giving some points of study, uh, 11 of them all together in terms of the date and the authorship and the place of writing and some of the background. We're going to see the two dominant themes today are rejoicing and thinking. And we're going to learn to do both. Uh, it's, of course, it's how sad is it when people rejoice but don't think think it through and uh, don't think the doctrine, cycling the doctrine that relates to why they're rejoicing. See, or on the other hand, if all you're doing is thinking and you never rejoice, that can be a problem too. We want to do both. We want to uh, rejoice and we want to think. And that's going to be uh, the word, the two word studies that we'll do today. Not word studies, but surveys of the uh, the terms and how they're used here in the book. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to prepare our souls for the truth that he has for us. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you just so thankful that your word is alive and powerful. And on this day, Father, we're not simply studying and an old book from thousands of years ago that's out of date and old-fashioned and primitive. Father, it is the living and abiding Word of God, and it is just as alive today as it's ever been. It is powerful. I thank you for it. I thank you for the way that it dwells richly within each one of us. I thank you, Father, that it comes alive and it springs forth to bear fruit. And in all these things, Father, it is for your glory and for your good pleasure. We can't take any credit Father, we are here to study. We do uh, present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed. But it's your work, Father. You are the one that's at work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. So we thank you for this blessing today. Open our eyes, teach us, feed us, equip us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, just real quickly running down through these issues. uh, Written by Paul and Timothy, uh, which we see here in verse 1. It is noteworthy, though, that he does not call himself an apostle. You know, uh, just take the time, if you will, this week and read through the introduction to all of Paul's books. And uh, typically it's going to be Paul an apostle, right? Uh, But he does not mention his apostolic calling here in this verse. It's addressed to all the saints at Philippi. And, and of course, we're all saints. We don't need a a pope to tell us we're a saint or we don't need a vote to achieve sainthood after we're dead. Uh, We're all saints uh, in Christ Jesus, that we are set apart, sanctified, made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. So every member of the local church is a saint. Every member of the church universal is a saint. And as it says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, We realize the difference between the universal church and the local church is that the local church is a small body that represents the larger body of Christ. And we are gathered at a location, at Philippi, at Ephesus, at Thyatira, at Laodicea, or or where have you, at uh, 8405 Cross Park Drive, okay? We are a lampstand. We are a group of believers that meets at a particular place at particular times. And we have the structure of overseers and deacons in what we see here in the rest of verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And this is what sets apart a Bible study from a lampstand. It's not just a gathering of believers. It is a flock. It is a lampstand. And for every lampstand, Jesus Christ walks in the midst of that lampstand. He holds the star in his right hand. There's one star per lampstand, as we have the pattern for us there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Thirdly, it was written during an imprisonment, and I argue for the Ephesus imprisonment as opposed to the Roman imprisonment or the Caesarean imprisonment, and we've discussed that repeatedly. Um, the only really objective to the Ephesian uh, imprisonment uh, theory is the fact that Acts 19 does not mention an imprisonment uh, during Paul's three years in the uh, ministry at Ephesus. But I think we've just, we've uh, laid that to rest as really a a, a non uh, sequitur as a non-issue. It's not really a defeater at all uh, because there are so many things that happened in Ephesus that were not recorded in Acts 19. The idea that an imprisonment or two imprisonments or three imprisonments or more 
uh, not being mentioned is not actually surprising. Uh, under point four, gave you some history and background on uh, Philippi. We'll go back through that. We showed you the map work for the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. We spent some time in chapter 2 detailing that travelogue. And if you missed it, I encourage you, go back, get those MP3s off the website and listen to those lessons. I think uh, maybe uh, three classes before this one this morning, we really uh, spent time on that travelogue, showing the, 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 time, the, the, the journeys back and forth between Philippi and Ephesus and how much travel there was reflected there in that second chapter. To me, that disproves the Roman uh, origin. And if number six, six doesn't disprove the Roman origin, number seven clearly has to disprove the Roman origin. That is, when you take a look at their budget, when you take a look at the money references and the, the grace approach that the Philippians had, uh, the book of Philippians is great to be able to teach us principles of grace giving, why it is that we don't pass a plate, why it is we don't twist arms, why it is we don't tithe in an Old Testament format. Because we are New Testament believers in a New Testament church, and our model is the model of grace. And all of the grace doctrines that come into the financial provision for an assembly are, uh, are significant. And they're found here in the book of Philippians. And there was a time that they supported him, and then there was a time they had to stop. And then finally, recently, uh, they were able to start supporting him again. You might even think of the book of Philippians, the whole book is Paul's thank you note for their resumption of financial support. That, that he writes this letter to them upon receiving the, uh, the, the money that, that Epaphroditus brought. And so when he brought this offering, Paul was able to communicate with them and thank them for, uh, for their support. So between the travelogue and the budget that we look at and the money references in Philippians, I think we have a, an excellent opportunity to pinpoint the origin and date and uh, material. Beyond that are some inferences. Now, some of you were a little skeptical, and, and I admit, some of these are inferences. They're not solid, okay? So I didn't start out with this. I put it all the way off to point eight, okay? And it's just kind of like extra details added on top of six and seven, because I think six and seven are conclusive. But then beyond that, then, the additional inferences in the expressions that are found in chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, uh, that the inferences are that Paul has only been to Philippi once, one time and one time only, and that he's looking forward to going back, and when he does go back, it will be his second time ever to be passing through the city of Philippi. And if those inferences are in fact true, then they help to add to the, uh, the weight of evidence uh, combined with point six and point seven that really pinpoints uh, Acts 19. It pinpoints the Ephesian ministry on Paul's third missionary journey. So, which gets us now to my conclusion. Now, if you were here Wednesday, you heard something different than what you're about to hear this morning. So, pay attention, <laughs> okay? Because Wednesday, I didn't realize until I was driving home, Wednesday, um, I, was, I, I had an old slide on the screen that I did not intend to read and I did not intend to teach. Uh, it was an old slide on the screen that said that uh, Philippians was written during the um, uh, Ephesus stay. Paul did have a three-year stay in Ephesus during that third missionary journey. Um, the, slide, the bad slide that you read said it was in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that Paul had written 1 Corinthians and then Philippians and then 2 Corinthians in that order. And so if you wrote that down from that bad slide Wednesday night, cross that off and change it to this better slide, whereby I think that Philippians is even earlier than 1 Corinthians. All right? I still leave the other prison epistles. I still leave Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon. I still leave those epistles after 1 Corinthians and before 2 Corinthians, uh, but at a later stage in the, in the Ephesus ministry. In other words, late in the three-year window. Where, and I put Philippians early in the three-year window. And there's reasons for that as well. So, uh, my conclusion then. Put down Pastor Bob's conclusion. And then disagree with it if you want. But this is my conclusion. That it was written from Ephesus during Paul's three-year stay before, before 1 Corinthians. Okay? And so the proposed order. 
obviously. Uh, and you can use Ephesus, by the way, as kind of a benchmark for the life of Paul. So in the pre-Ephesian ministry, before he ever settles down and for those three years in Ephesus, in the pre-Ephesian ministry, he wrote Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians. All right, and we're very clear on that. That's that's uh, to me that's not even debatable. I mean, some people try, but um, Galatians early and First and Second Thessalonians after that during the second missionary journey. Then there's the Ephesian ministry, which included in this order, I believe, Philippians, First Corinthians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. Now don't put a gun to my head or, or hold me to this. If down the road, because the ones that are really hard to pinpoint are Colossians and Philemon. They were written basically at the same time, probably on the same day. So which one was written first? Who cares? You know, if, if they're written that close and they're written together and they're and, and Tychicus is the courier that's carrying both of them. Um, Philemon was was a person who lived in Colossae. The church was in his house. All right, and so you can think of Colossians as a letter that was written to the church, and Philemon was a letter, personal letter, written to the man with the gift of hospitality or giving, or the 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 he was the his son was the pastor, but he himself was the host for that church. And then I put Ephesians at the end. Ephesians was written right before he uh, escaped out of Ephesians, out of Ephesus, while he was in hiding, and uh, this was his his farewell message as he departed from uh, Ephesus after that three-year stay. Post-Ephesian ministry, this is where you would put 2 Corinthians and Romans. 2 Corinthians almost immediately upon leaving when he arrives in Macedonia, he arrives in Philippi. Now that becomes important because this then is his second time in Philippi. And if this is his second time in Philippi as he's writing 2 Corinthians, I think it's vital that we are able to put Philippians in front of that. And so we find the inferences from Philippians that are to be found in 2 Corinthians in, uh, in an interesting way. And then, of course, when he, he finally makes it to Corinth, and uh, that's where he writes Romans. And then, of course, later, in a post-Acts 28 ministry is when he writes the pastoral epistles. And that's where you get 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, all written after Acts 28 all written in the, the years from 63 to 67 uh, after the, the, uh, Roman, the two-year Roman imprisonment that ends the book of Acts. There is no Acts 29, okay, uh, at least in my Bible and hopefully yours. Um, but, but Acts 29, I mean, there's, there's a, I don't recommend it, but there is a ministry group that has titled themselves the Acts 29 ministry group. And, and basically their view is let's take it beyond the apostles. Let's take it beyond first century Christianity and see what happens after the book of Acts. So that's my order. And, uh, that's the order I'm going to stick with. If you have any questions on that, we'll, uh, we can address it Wednesday night. We like to do some Q&A time at the beginning of our Wednesday evening session. And so uh, uh, we'll be glad to handle more things there. All right, which gets us now to the last details of what we want to deal with here in the introduction. And that includes some of the dominant themes. And there's no question, uh, you ask, you read 100 commentaries and you're going to get 99 of them are all going to say rejoice. Okay, the main theme to Philippians is rejoice, and uh, <clears throat> maybe not even 99, maybe all 100 out of 100 commentaries, uh, everyone's going to say the dominant theme is rejoice. Paul has no trouble repeating it over and over and over again. He gets very redundant with it. In fact, I'll come back to the slide here in a moment. But do you like pictures? I like pictures. I'm I'm, I'm a visual kind of guy. I can look at a chart. I could stare at a chart for hours, all right? And so if I'm looking at, uh, this is a com combination of Cairo, the verb Cairo, and the noun kara, okay? Cairo is a verb that means to rejoice, and kara is a noun that means joy. And so uh, if you combine those and you, you do a search through the New Testament for uh, Cairo and kara, this is what you get. And uh, you find, uh, you know, 12 uses in Matthew and only three in Mark. You don't know why he was such a downer. And then uh, 20 in Luke, uh, 18 in John. And you just go across from Matthew to Revelation there, and you can see <clears throat> some kind of noteworthy absences. You know Ephesians? Ephesians has zero. Cairo or Kara. There is no joy or rejoicing in Ephesians. 
Does that grab your attention? Because Colossians has some. We, we usually think of Ephesians and Colossians as twin sisters. Well, they're not identical twins, okay? Um, they must be fraternal. Colossians does, has, does have three. <coughs> First Thessalonians 6, and then you see the rest of it there. Now, a chart like this is slightly misleading. Why? I mean, doesn't that paint the picture? If we're looking at... Uh, if we're looking at Philippians, we go, wow, that's, that's a lot of rejoicing right there. 14, that's pretty high. Okay? It's not quite the twin towers that are over here in, uh, in Luke and John, you know, with 20 uses and 18 uses. So numerically, Luke and John do have more. Can't doubt that. But think about it. How long? What is the length of Luke? How many chapters? How many verses? What is the length of John? How many chapters? How many verses? You know, if you write something that long, you're going to get some words just by accident. <laughs> you know, you can't help it because you're going to have that many words. And so uh, I think it's useful also to, to view things by uh, perspe- uh, a percentage on a ratio. And so the next chart actually has a ratio there um, related to this. So uh, All right, so what I did, I went ahead, I just zoomed in. This is uh, the Pauline letters from Romans to Philemon on an absolute basis. Again, on, even on absolute numbers here, uh, Philemon is off the top with 14 compared to 2 Corinthians that has 13. But over here is I made it a ratio. You take the number of results divided by the number of words in the book, and that gives you a, a ratio. And uh, on a ratio basis, uh, there's there's no comparison. There is just self-evident that uh, Philippians is the book of joy and rejoicing. It jumps out at you there. All right. By the way, if you want a a cool website, I forget what it's called. It's called, um, I'll share it with you Wednesday night because I can't remember now. It's a Catholic website, but they, they do statistics on books of the Bible and the number of chapters and the number of verses and the number of words and they've got uh, some some tables and charts to look at. Like I say, I can stare at charts and tables for hours on end. But it's useful to see the the, the number of verses and the percentage and the, the ratio that you're dealing with in uh, any particular application. All right, so let's uh, let's rejoice <laughs> and look at the verb. Uh, Cairo, that's C-H-A-I-R-O, the long O, the omega that ends Cairo there. If you use a Strong's Concordance for your word studies, you'll find Cairo is number 5463. And uh, you'll, you'll observe that there are 74 uses throughout the New Testament of Cairo, and um, you can find those and, and I put the chart up there where they are. Um, 74 uses of, of the verb Cairo. It's an active verb, by the way, a transitive verb. It's the subject accomplishes the activity, and, and whoever is spoken of as doing the rejoicing has a reason for why they're rejoicing. And... Uh, We'll discuss that as well. And then the cognate noun to Cairo is Kara, C-H-A-R-A. And I've noticed uh, here lately, Kara even becomes a girl's name. that has been assigned in some cases uh, as a girl's name. But uh, Cairo and Kara. Kara is number 5479 in the Strong's Concordance, if you use those numbering systems. And uh, 59 times there uh, for the noun. Sometimes a, a verse will use both. We'll use, uh, I am rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, you know, something like that. And that's not a particularly Greek way of writing, but I think it reflects uh, what is a particularly Hebrew way of writing. The Hebrews would very much like to use verbs in their cognate nouns in in, uh, several applications. So um, let's uh, take a look at these 14 uses in Philippians and kind of give us uh, a preview for what we're going to have down the road starting, uh, well, let's see, we got some verses in chapter 1, look at that, we got some verses in chapter 2. We got a verse in chapter three. In fact, it starts chapter three, and then we got some more verses in chapter four, and uh, then we're out of chapters. <laughs> okay, so every chapter in Philippians has something to say about joy and rejoicing. So after the uh, introduction here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And if I had to pick a third theme, uh, it would be prayer, okay? There's a ton of prayer uh, in, uh, in this book, with, with a variety of expressions too, by the way. Supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings. 
So here is always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And I think that link between prayer and joy is curious to me. And it's one that we see again and again and again, not only in Philippians, but throughout the scriptures, we find a combination of prayer and joy. And uh, that by itself ought to tell us something. I think that by itself preaches a whole sermon related to uh, what happens if I have a diminished prayer life. Well, what might I expect the consequences could be? Maybe I've got a diminished joy capacity. All right. And uh, part of the blessings to be able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice is that there is so much rejoicing in our prayers because we're not just rejoicing about ourselves. Uh, You know, if, if you're just so myopic that it's just you, there may not be so much to rejoice over, <laughs> all right? But if you've got a whole body of people and we have all kinds of things to rejoice over, then uh, it gets multiplied on that basis. All right, down to verse 18 then. There's two more coming up. Now in, the, in between verse 4 and verse 18, we have his circumstances. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So kind of a bummer that I'm in jail, but guess what? It's, it's increased my fruit. There's been more, more work to get done. And so it's not a bad thing that I'm in jail. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. But he's being held in the Praetorian. He's being held, which doesn't demand a Rome audience. It could be the, uh, the Praetorian in, in Ephesus. It refers to the palace where, the, where Caesar's official resides. Anyway, think about it. Think about the impact he can have with his, with his jailer, with his guards, like he did in Philippi, right? In Philippi, the jailer got saved the next morning. And so now he's relating to the Philippians what's, what's happening here. Anyway, but then he says, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord, this is verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more encouraged to speak the word of God without fear. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? You would think that they'd be scared or that they'd be nervous and say, ooh, you know, Paul's in jail. We better lay low. We better kind of back off a little bit. We don't want to get that attention for ourselves. It was just the opposite. They were emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to be preaching the gospel. So much so that they even had little factions develop among them in, uh, in who could outdo the other in their evangelism. Uh, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. That's a bad motivation, right? I mean, you don't want to go out there preaching the gospel, hoping to... I mean, are they competing with one another? We don't know. I mean, were they competing with one another? What was the envy and strife? Do they want to, you know, be able to point to, you know, how many people in the flock or people that they led to the Lord? You know, if that's something you're boasting in, what are you doing? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, all right? So some are preaching Christ from envy and strife, some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, but, oh, and it does say, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there we got a little glimpse into what their mentality was like and why, why they were doing that. But anyway, at the end of the day, who cares? Paul says, you know what, even if they got the wrong motives, it's still the gospel getting preached. <laughs> okay? And he says, I'm going I'm to rejoice in that. So that's verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Yeah, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So there's a present tense. I am rejoicing. Yes, I will rejoice in the future. And we have the, the double use there in, uh, in verse 18. Uh, down then to verse 25 is the final use here in chapter 1. Uh, this is part of uh, where he said he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He is still awaiting his verdict. He's in jail and not knowing if, he's, if this is going to result in his uh, departure from planet Earth. And he says, honestly, I don't know what to ask for. Going to heaven would be great. But if I stay here, there's work to be done. And so that's very much better. Uh, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. All right, so down to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith. For all your progress and joy in the faith. So uh, out of all these uses on joy, he realizes that his ministry to them was going to result in the progress of their joy. 
your progress and joy in the faith. So we'll deal with that. Now over to chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and these are all true statements, by the way. Greek has different ways to say if, and this is a way to say if and it's so. Okay, So if and there is any encouragement in Christ, if and there is any consolation of love, if and there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if and there is affection and compassion... Those are all powerful statements right there. And all that being said, then, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. What do you think that's about? (laughs) All right. You mean there's incomplete joy? Well, what was wrong with Paul's joy? Man, by the time I finished chapter one, I thought he had all kinds of joy. And I thought Paul was just off the charts with joy and rejoicing and I rejoice. But there's not a completion yet. There are still deficiencies what would what would cap it off? What would be the icing on the cake? What would be just really just, you know, we've got different expressions, but make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know what really gets a pastor jazzed up? <laughs> okay? It's not seats in, in you know, warm bodies and chairs. Although that's kind of fun too, but what really gets the pastor jazzed is what we see here, the like-mindedness, the unity, what comes about when the Word of God transforms thinking, all right? Because that's clearly a work of God. When that happens, it's beyond anything this world can can understand or, or, or figure out. Satan counterfeits an awful lot of things. Uh, this is something he can't, that unity of the Spirit, Satan cannot imitate that. The best he can do is, is create some kind of a legalistic slavery. He cannot create a unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The blessings that we have to be growing, and as I'm growing and becoming more Christ-like, and you're growing and becoming more Christ-like, each one of us together is becoming more Christ-like, and so we have that unity of thought, intent on one purpose, maintaining the same love, being of the same mind. And so that is what's going to complete Paul's joy. This too, I think, is useful if we remember the context for Philippians and related either just before or just after 1 Corinthians was being written. Did Corinth give Paul much joy? <laughs> okay, Corinth was the anti-Philippi. And uh, Corinth was schismatic. Corinth was in darkness. Corinth had all kinds of problems. You read 1 Corinthians and there is rebuke after rebuke after rebuke and corrective measures and this and that's got to change. And uh, so you can imagine... In the, in, the, in the neighborhood of writing a letter like that, I think just before, you know, when you know that there's a real tough letter you've got to write and you want to pray about it, you want to make sure you say it the right way, you want to make sure the, the Spirit's leading, uh, is it unreasonable to think that you might maybe delay a day or two and say, you know what, I'm going I'm to write to the Philippians first. <laughs> you know, because here comes Epaphroditus and he's bringing blessings uh, and, and financial gifts and he's bringing a sweet-smelling savor and, and you know, Paul is just, exuberant with that so he's gonna he's gonna write philippians first and then you know all right tomorrow i'll write to the corinthians (laughs) okay so make my joy complete by doing what the corinthians cannot do um and so there it is uh same chapter get down to verse 17 how in the world are they going to be of the same mind how's all this going to happen Well, it's going to happen as they grow in the Word of God. And so um, verse 16 says, holding fast the Word of life. It's the only way, the absolute only way that unity of spirit, intent on one purpose, the like-mindedness, the same love one to another, it happens through the shaping of the Word of God. Holding fast the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Again, can we put the backdrop of Corinthians into that verse and think about it? Are there times that a pastor thinks he's just wasting his time and what am I really doing here anyway? Is there anything being done? Well, Paul might be tempted to think that with respect to Corinth, but not with respect to Philippi. Verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. 
And this is how things get multiplied, because it's not just you rejoicing by yourself. It's you rejoicing and fellowshipping in that joy, sharing that joy with others, blessing them with the, to increase their capacity for rejoicing based upon your capacity to do so. And I love the priestly language on this, being poured out as a drink offering. Now, as far as metaphors go, we kind of get that. Do you ever feel poured out from time to time? Okay, you ever feel worn out? Okay, or somehow uh, the the tank is empty. You just tip that thing over, and there's just nothing left. And you think, what else, Lord? What 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 now? Okay, but the metaphor is, is remarkable because this descri- this goes back to Leviticus, right? This goes back to one of the hardest books that we read on an annual basis in our Bible reading schedule, and then we get a little bit. And honestly, sometimes we struggle so much that we kind of skim through some pages and, okay, okay, slit the throat here, pour the blood there, sprinkle this where, and smear that. And, and then, and you know, does, it, does your head ever spin? I'm just preaching to myself this morning. I mean, the details can be overwhelming. I know Robert loves the book. It's his favorite book. But the, um, the, the level of detail there, unless you read carefully, you may fail to recognize that there were drink offerings with several of those. And if you think about a drink offering whereby you are partaking in the feast, you're, you're, you, okay, you killed the animal and part of it went to the Lord, but you're going to eat the rest of that and you're going to fellowship with the Levites and the priests and you're going to talk doctrine, you're, they're going to teach you some things. You're going to have some wine that you're going to participate in and that's relaxing and fun. You're going to have other wine that you're not going to partake in because you're going to pour it out. Okay, Why would you do that? You're, there's doctrine with that. There's a principle for that. And... Um, all the shadow doctrine that relates to the to the person of Christ in this first advent. Now, what's extraordinary to and we'll deal with this. There's uh, I, I really intend by the time we get to chapter two, I want to focus on this seventeenth verse here because he talks about the sacrifice and service of your faith, meaning that the believers in Philippi, the local church of Philippi, you know, I call them Philippi Bible Church. Right? And they had a little sign out front, a website. Philippi Bible Church was, was ministering in a great way. They had a sacrifice. Their faith was, was a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. And they had a sacrifice, a sacrifice and service of their faith. And Paul, is, is, is what he's saying here, is from Ephesus, from his jail cell, that he wanted to pour the drink offering. He wanted to come alongside their sacrifice with his drink offering, right? Isn't that beautiful? And I I think there's some things from the ancient world that carry into the modern world in a kind of a bizarre fashion, but if there's something that you really, you want to become a partaker with it, you want to get on board and you you want to voice your identification with something, and so you take your cup and you say, I drink to that, right? What does that even mean? If you propose a toast or you drink a toast, what is a toast? And how did, how did these traditions and practices and, and goofy stuff, how did that come into the modern world? What, what was its origin in the ancient world? And what was the role of the, the glass of wine? The glass of, the glass of wine you consumed if you were on board with the sacrifice and you were like-minded with the, with the, with the Levites and the thing, and then what about the, the toast where you poured it out? Why would you do such a thing? And they get the carpet all messy. <laughs> Just pouring wine everywhere. Well, I think the blood of the animals was messier, so who cares? <laughs> anyway, there's a lot in that 17th verse. I am being poured out as a drink offering, even if. And he references that with a pending execution, that he might die in this jail so. And that his death, his dying grace work assignment could be the drink offering to the Philippian sacrifice. It's a beautiful thing. And if we don't lose ourselves in the metaphor, we can actually glean a tremendous amount of doctrine there and we can start making use of it ourselves in our own priestly sacrifices. And so uh, then he says, you too, I urge you. So he's going to rejoice and share his joy with them. He says, you too, I urge you, Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And share your joy with me. 
And this is what ought to be uh, center, center stage in our potlucks, in our fellowship times, in our prayer meetings, is, hey, here's what I'm rejoicing over. Uh, we're not just coming to prayer meeting with a bunch of gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. You know, I need, I need, I need, I need. Um, we should just come before, and there could be occasions where we never get around to asking for anything that we need because we spend so much time telling him how great he is. Just worshiping our God and all the great things that he does. Worthy to be praised. Mutual, reciprocal rejoicing. And that's a great activity. All right, down to verses 28 and 29. And um, in the context here where they had heard that Epaphroditus was sick. And so he wants to send Epaphroditus to them. And he's going to send it. uh, He does send Epaphroditus. In verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. So he sends Epaphroditus already, probably the courier of this very letter. He hands them the scroll that is the book of Philippians. And he is your, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your apostle, messenger, and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. That's part of the the journeys back and forth. They had heard that he was sick. He had heard that they had heard that he was sick. All right? And he was distressed, that they were distressed because they had heard that he was sick. And so all these back and forths, all of those back and forths required travel. People had to walk back and forth. They weren't shooting email. They didn't get it on Twitter. They didn't get it on Facebook. They didn't see on Paul's Facebook wall that Epaphroditus was sick. All of this back and forth required travel. And we went through that as we gave you that point of study. Indeed, verse 27, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. And so there's the the benefit. I think when we get missionary reports, there's a benefit. We get rejoicing when we get good news from elsewhere, okay? And beyond this flock, we hear about the the work of the Lord in other flocks. We hear about the work of the Lord in other mission fields, like next hour with the Pregnancy Resource Center. I, I expect a lot of rejoicing over what Lori Davila shares with us. Verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. The hospitality blessings are a joy, not a chore. <laughs> we don't grumble over somebody in town, oh, we gotta, you know, we got to host them and feed them and, and find a place for them to sleep. That's no, joy. We receive them in joy and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. That verse is not designed as an insult. That's not from Paul's perspective. That's from their perspective. They knew their service was deficient and they dispatched Epaphroditus to complete that. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of chapter 2. All right, chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. You know, does it hurt Paul to write rejoice down again a second time? In fact, he has a scribe. He's not even writing it. Paul all Paul has to do is say it. And the the scribe is the one who has to write it down, put the quill to the parchment and write it down. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a good thing. Redundancy is a good thing, Right? It's no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. There's a protective benefit to saying something more than once, to saying something again and again and again, to saying something so many times, like according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You hear it enough times, and you might figure it out. You know what? We're not looking to the millennium. We're looking for after the thousand years. We're looking, Doug's even writing a song, We're looking for after the thousand years. We're looking to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The millennium is not everything people crack it up to be. The millennium is going to be a failure. It's going to end with a rebellion, a march against Jerusalem. One of these, uh, you know, I don't know, these insane protest marches going on and putting stupid hats on their head and all kinds of things. Okay? (laughs) And they're going to demand Satan be released out of the abyss. They don't want Jesus on the throne. 
They're going to demand he get off that throne. We don't want away with this fellow. We want, we want, remember when they demanded we want Barabbas? Okay. And what, what then shall I do with this one you call Christ? Think about the foreshadowing of what that was a picture of and what's coming up. And they're going to demand Satan out of the abyss. They're going to march. And then he who sits in the heavens laughs and sends the fire down to, to bring that all to an end. All right, so we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. And then you hear that enough. Every Bible class starts with that. And uh, it, uh, it makes the point. It's a safeguard for you. It is a safeguard for you. Over to chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You know, if you think about what you have to look forward to, your joy and crown, what you can rejoice in here in time, but what will be a crown in eternity. And, uh, you know, we talk about our pride and joy. We talk about different things. Uh, with respect to people, usually it's, uh, you know, it's a beloved son in whom you're well pleased, or it's your better half, or whatever the case may be. We have, we have expressions of fondness for those people that, that we want to appreciate. My joy and my crown. Okay. Anyway, he calls a church this. This is his joy in his crown. And certainly compared to Corinth, uh, this would be one that he would boast in. This would be one that he would be, he would be comfortable, uh, you know. We, we have to give an account to the Lord. And imagine that he's looking forward to, to taking Philippi Bible Church and saying, Lord, here's your saints. And that's going to be a joy for him. And then there's Corinth. He's going to say, Lord... I'm not sure what happened here, <laughs> okay? Anyway, let them do this with joy and not with grief, or that would be unprofitable for you. And uh, I think that the, the grief flocks uh, at the judgment seat, the grief flocks are going to see that reward stripped away, handed to the shepherd. They did it with faithfulness anyway. Chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, then on to verse 4. Now there's a couple of ladies here that can't get along, Yodi and Siddiqui. And uh, I bet you they're just delighted to have their names recorded forever. Anyway, they have to get along better. Indeed, true companion. Indeed, true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And... Uh, I've got some guesses on who true companion might be, and I'll make up my mind before we get to chapter four. Okay, uh, but he's going to help these women to uh, to get along. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You got got the point yet? <laughs> okay, this isn't just a hint. It's not a tip. It's not a a good idea. It's a command. It's an order. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's like what he wrote to 1 Thessalonians, right? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. He's already recorded that in the canon of Scripture. Now he's pounding it in to the, to the Philippians, and they're thinking, always, again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. To me, when we handle this paragraph, we're going to have to handle it as a unit and we're going to have to recognize the context and the setting for every single one of these verses. Because there are so many people that are anxious and they're told not to be. And yet they're anxious anyway. And then they pray for it. But they pray for it in their anxiety. And they were told to not be anxious and pray for it with thanksgiving. And the command to not be anxious is, follows the command to rejoice always. Uh, and, and to rejoice in everything. Okay? And so if you're going to rejoice always and be anxious for nothing, that, that's, that's a universal statement right there. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I've known so many discouraged believers to say, well, that verse doesn't work. So you're misapplying it. The verse works every time. And it's, it's remarkable. It didn't even promise to answer your prayers. It just promises to give you the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding while you wait for a, an answer that you may be waiting a long, long time. 
So we'll talk about that. All right, but there's rejoicing there. Always, again, I say rejoice. And then down to verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last, and this is t- part, part of the, the money issues there, that they had previously been able to support him financially and then had to stop. Uh, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And those were some of the details that we had there pertaining to when they could give and when they had to stop giving, when they couldn't give anymore. And then now at last, now at last, okay? And so all the indicators are, this is the, the first time they've ever had, had the blessing to give another uh, contribution and, and it ended that drought. It ended that season of, of non-support, of non-financial support. And so he was able to rejoice over that. Not from the money, not from the circumstances okay i know how to get along with humble means i also know how to live in prosperity so don't get confused don't think that he's rejoicing over the money and then yesterday he couldn't rejoice because he didn't have the money yet he can rejoice in all circumstances when when the money gets there and the day before it gets there before he even knows it's coming he learns the secret of getting along in every circumstance see rejoicing is not contingent upon our circumstances Rejoicing is our volition to obey God's command. And we have the capacity to do so based upon his word. So there it is. This also is where I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Don't misapply that verse. Don't rip that out of his context. Don't think you can do uh, you know, what you can't do. You can't do it if you can't do it. Don't misapply the verse. All right, the second dominant theme besides rejoice is think. There's a lot of thinking commands in Philippians. And again, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. We're out of chapters. Every single one has a thinking command. And some of them don't translate well into English, and so we don't know their thinking commands. Some of them use the dreaded feel word, and that bugs me to death. Okay? And it's only it's a pet peeve of mine simply because our generation has devolved into such a, a touchy-feely, sad situation. And I, I, would, I would much rather that we think the right way because then if you have your thinking in the driver's seat, then you can have your emotions in the passenger seat and your soul is in great shape. But when you put emotions in the driver's seat... Before you know it, uh, thinking is, is it's not in the passenger seat, it's not in the back seat, it might be in the trunk, or maybe you just chucked it all together. That when, when emotions are in the driver's seat, sometimes there's no thinking at all that takes place. Does that make any sense? All right. The verb is freneo, and again and again and again we got freneo in this book. 26 times in the New Testament, freneo, P-H-R-O-N-E-O, Freneo. That's the verb. The noun is frain, P-H-R-E-N. I didn't put that on the screen. Uh, but frain is a mind. And, if, and it can be schizoed. It can be divided. You can have a divided mind. It's where we get the English word schizophrenic. You have a divided mind. And beyond thinking, this is thinking through to its conclusion. It's not just an abstract thought where you never decide anything. It's not just an abstract thought where you've got kind of a never-ending, well, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. No, freneo means you've thought about it and you've come to a mind. Say, I have a mind to do something, or I have half a mind to do something, which is kind of colloquial. But um, if, you, if you have made up your mind to do something, as, as I announced this morning, I'm of a mind to suspend our evening schedule tonight, Right? Because I thought it through, weighed the pros and cons, considered uh, having a substitute, considered who'd be here anyway, um, and then who would skip it if they knew the pastor was gone. And, uh, you know, so you think through everything, and then you come to a mind or a mindset, okay? And if you're of a mind to do something, that's you've completed the verb freneo. So freneo, in terms of thinking, comes to that conclusion. You're of a mind to do something. And so, backing up to chapter 1 again, Philippians 1, back to verse 7. Wouldn't it be great if we cover every verse in the book in the introduction? 
They didn't have to teach it. All right, Philippians 1, 7. Confident of this very thing. He's so thankful that, uh, that they're participating in the gospel. And they've been participating. Even when they couldn't send money, they were participating. They were participating in prayer. They were participating in their, in their love and concern for him. So in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The plans that God has for Philippi Bible Church, he's going to get it done. The plans that he has for Austin Bible Church, he's going to get it done. We often claim that verse on an individual basis. I don't think it's wrong to do so, but that would be secondarily to the collective basis. He's He's addressing a flock. He's addressing a lampstand. The saints, the overseers, and the deacons. And what he began there, he's going to finish. That local church has a destiny. And God's going to get it done. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to think this way about you all. And I know, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible this morning, like I am, then um, they rendered that feel instead of think. It is only right for me to phreneo this way about you all because I have you in my cardia. And remember, the cardia is the innermost man, the innermost core of your being. It's not the emotional heart. It's not the splanchnon. It's not the kidneys. It's not, it's not an emotional term. He's cycling the doctrine and Philippi is at the top of the charts. Philippi is right there at the core of his innermost being. Since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Let me tell you something. If if you get thrown in jail next week or tomorrow, today, if you get put in jail and the charge against you is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ preaching the gospel of of Jesus Christ, think about it. Who's going to come visit you? Who's going to come bring you food? Who's going to come and identify with you? Who's going to come? Because you, can, you might expect that that throws suspicion on you, does it not? Oh, are you one of them? <laughs> are you one of them? And you, and you end up like Peter saying, I don't even know the man. Okay. <laughs> Surely you're a Galilean also. You speak like a Galilean. And then Peter curses, says, no, I don't know the man. Well, think about it. This is part of why uh, the, the New Testament admonishes us to, to show sympathy to the prisoners and some of the other exhortations that are there because they were in prison for their faith. And do you identify with them or not? When the police come in here and, and uh, arrest us and shut us down and haul us off to jail, is, uh, is your name on the active and inactive member and non-member list? <laughs> well, do you identify with a flock or not? Okay, because I believe we identify one with another. We identify with Jesus Christ in this lampstand. And so this is what their attitude was. I have you all in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. If you don't identify with the body that you're called to identify with, you're not partaking in the grace that God has designed to be partakers of grace. So it's a thinking word, and we have to adjust our thinking based upon brothers and sisters that are engaged with us in the angelic conflict. That definitely shapes your thinking one to another. Another thinking expression in chapter 2, a bunch of thinking expressions in chapter 2. In fact, the whole reason many of you are excited about the Philippian series is because of chapter (laughs) 2, and I get that. All right, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Guess what? You know what that attitude is? Thinking thinking make my joy complete by being of the same thinking being of the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose the frenetical verb is actually used twice in that second verse same mind uh, intent on one purpose That's our thinking. We have the same thinking. And the beautiful thing is, it's the thinking of Christ. It's not uh, not a cult. It's not a cult leader. See, 
how many religious leaders and televangelists and other you know frauds they uh they they want a bunch of a bunch of sheep to to not think and just agree with everything they say <laughs> all right let me tell you that's not like-mindedness that's a pathetic uh cult following say if you agree with me i don't want you to agree with me because it's what i think i want to agree with christ based on what the word of god says and I want you to agree with Christ based upon what the Word of God says. And if I have that kind of fellowship and you have that kind of fellowship, then naturally, guess what happens between us? We're going to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We're going to be of the same mind. And it's the mind of Christ. It's not going along with whatever the pastor says. And so the things that will hinder this then do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, those warnings there are designed because those kind of arrogant attitudes will hinder you from having the, the thinking you're supposed to have. And the best example of all, of course, is the example of Christ. So think this way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think as Christ thought, right? Think as he thunk. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think the thought process, too, where you have the mind of Christ. He did. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that's the great kenosis doctrine, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. All right. Now, whatever God asks of you is going to be less than that. Okay. We're going to go through some humility. We're going to go through some humiliation. But we're not going to lay aside the, the, the robes of glory and, and depart the ivory palaces to enter into mortality. We're already in mortality. All right? Our suffering, our humility, our testing, we've got the prime example to follow. And there's, no, there's nothing that we cannot follow in, uh, in this pattern. So have this thinking over to chapter 3, more thinking. Got to wrap this up. I'm going to run out of time. 3.15. See if we can wrap this up, then uh, we can actually start the, the narrative of uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, Wednesday night. Uh, 3.15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. Have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. If your thinking is different than what it needs to be, God can change that. Ask God to change your thinking. Because if your thinking is different, that means your thinking is wrong. <laughs> okay? There's no alternative lifestyle, alternative plan, alternative this or that. Alternative is called sin. God's plan is what's perfect. So have his thinking. As many as are perfect and being perfected, have this attitude. Think this way. And if anything, you think in a different way, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 19 uh, the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds, who freneo on earthly things. Stop freneoing earthly things. We're commanded to freneo heavenly things. Colossians 3.1, remember the last baptism service? Brought, brought everybody up out of the water. I said, therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. That's freneo. Okay? Think on the things above. Finally, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, verse 10. I urge Yodia and I urge Seneki to think in harmony in the Lord. You know, two women that can't get along, it's not an emotional thing. Wait a minute. According to this verse, these women that can't get along is a thinking thing. And they need to think the same as to live in harmony. Chapter 10 and verse 2. You have revived your concern for me. You've revived your phreneo thinking for me. Indeed, you were phreneo thinking concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. That's why when you say thanks to somebody, you are thankful for their thoughtfulness, that they had been thoughtful. They had been of a mind. They had a mind. They had you in mind. And so we express our charis, our grace, our thanksgiving, because of their thinking. Anyway, 
out of time. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this introduction and thank you for this book. I'm excited to see what Philippians is going to do for the saints of Austin Bible Church. You've begun a good work in us, Father. You will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.